One of my favorite stories out of the Gospels, one of my favorite stories actually in the whole Bible, uh, we're going to be in the book of James. If you want to find your way there as I tell you this story, you can. Um, but, um, yeah, and it, well, by the way, yeah, Children's Church is now dismissed. So if you want to follow Miss Rita out the door, you can. Um, okay, if you want to stay, that's fine too. All right. We welcome you either way. Um, so, so one of my favorite stories is uh, this true story from the Gospels. One day there was a local synagogue ruler, a man named Jairus, who came to Jesus and he said, Come quickly to my house. My daughter is sick. She is dying. And this synagogue ruler in a community like this, in a small town, the synagogue ruler would have been one of the most important people in that community. The local synagogue leader. If you're in a Jewish community at this time, this would have been the local, um, the local religious leader who was most prominent in all of the community. Uh, under, in fact, among Jews, there would have been no one more significant than him. He would have been the most important person in town as far, as far as the Jewish community was concerned. There were Roman governmental officials, obviously, in positions of power and authority over him. But, but this is the guy that they looked to, Jairus. And his daughter is sick. In fact, she is dying because she is sick. And yet, uh, and so Jesus, uh, he comes to Jesus, begs Jesus to come. Jesus is on his way. If you remember the story, as Jesus is on the, on the way to the synagogue ruler's house, there's a huge crowd pressing around Him. All kinds of people jostling and bumping. And in the middle of that crowd is a person who should not be there. A woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. If you are a woman with a discharge of blood at any time, that makes you ceremonially unclean under the Jewish law. And anyone that you touch also becomes ceremonially unclean. So if you are a person who is bleeding, you were not allowed to be out and about. And you definitely weren't allowed to be out and about in a crowd where you could be jostled and bump into a whole bunch of people that you've now just made ritually unclean. What are you doing? And so you've got both the top and the bottom of society here. You've got the very most important uh, religious person in the community, and you've got the person who is the number one religious outcast in that city. And they're both in the same crowd. And while Jesus is on His way to Jairus' house, this woman reaches out and grabs the corner of His robe. And as she does, power goes out from Jesus and heals her after 12 years of this illness. And Jesus immediately recognizes her. Now think about this. If you're a religious outcast, Someone who hasn't been able to go to the synagogue for 12 years. Who's forbidden to come to worship because you would defile everybody else there. What's the one thing you want to do to experience healing? 
You want to make sure it happens in secret. You do not want to hang a bell on this. And yet, that's exactly what Jesus does. He turns around to her. And He says, Who touched Me? And all the disciples, of course, being their generally clueless selves, say, Lord, uh, everybody's touching You. What are You talking about? He's like, No. There's someone specific that touched Me. And He has this woman come forward and be identified. And everybody recognizes her. Aren't you the woman not supposed to touch anybody? And He says to her, the most beautiful word in the, in the Scripture, He addresses her. He says, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. Now, now that's such a beautiful scene, right? But what if you're Jairus? My daughter is dying. Every second counts. If you could just get to my house already. And yet you're paying attention. In fact, you're taking time to pay attention to this woman who is the lowest rung of the social ladder. Jesus, what's up with that? i got to get you to my daughter. In fact, while they're still on the way, if you remember, some people come and they say to Jairus, hey, by the way, don't bother the teacher anymore. Your daughter has died. Now what's he thinking? My daughter's life came at the cost of this woman's healing. Couldn't she have come and been healed some other time? I mean, this has been going on for over a decade now. Jesus looks at him and says, don't worry, trust. They get to the house. He takes Jairus and the girl's mother, Jairus' wife. They go up into the room and they raise the girl from the dead. You know why I love that story? Well, many reasons. But one of the things I love about it is that with Jesus, what it shows is that with Jesus, it doesn't matter who you are. He cares about you regardless of where you stand on the rungs of the society. He cares about the lowest and the least and the outcast as well as the guy in a position of wealth, prominence, and importance. He cares about both ends of the social spectrum, right? And the reason I tell that story is because James is going to preach to us a little bit about that very thing. About how if you are a follower of Jesus, you cannot be a person who discriminates among, how, um, among the kinds of people you encounter and how you treat them. You need to love all people like Jesus loves them. Amen? All people. Poor as well as rich. Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, the same. Men and women, children, the elderly, everybody. You love them all like Jesus loves them. That's the point of what we're looking at together. But I want to read you the text and then look at it closely with you for a few minutes. So if you uh, have your Bible and you're able, uh, please stand. We're going to read James chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. 
This is what the Scripture says. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world, be rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are be, to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray. God, our Father, You call us to two great things, just as You did the saints of the Old Testament to love you with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength and also to love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Father, help us to fulfill both of these commands. We know that one is inextricably bound up with the other. We cannot love you whom we have not seen if we do not love those around us who we can see. Help us to remember that and, and to let your Scripture speak to us as, as sternly this morning as it needs to. And encourage us where we need encouragement. Father, we, we need these things from Your Word and we ask for them through Your Holy Spirit. And in Jesus' name, Amen. Alright, please be seated. Now, Pastor James has two major exhortations for his congregation and for us in this section of Scripture. And the first is found in verses 1 to 7, which is to stop favoring the wealthy over the poor. And James makes it very, very clear. Uh, look at verse 1. Read carefully with me. It begins, My brothers. That tells us that James is addressing his fellow Christians, Jewish believers in Jesus, just like himself. And next we see, Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. What does that mean? Well, show no partiality, we completely understand. Don't favor one kind of person over another. But don't miss the rest of that line. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. You could also translate that something like this. Because you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. See, James' point is real simple. That Christians... People who follow and imitate Jesus 
Don't let the kind of person someone is determine how we treat them. Why not? Because we hold the faith. In other words, believers in Jesus simply don't do that. We don't do that. Not if we have genuine faith in Jesus. We don't do that. We treat everyone equally well, not because of who they are, but because of who we are. We are people who belong to Jesus. And who Jesus is to us is that He is the Messiah and the Lord of glory. And so it doesn't matter who other people are. It matters who Jesus is and who we are because it's our faith in Him. If Jesus has saved us, then Jesus has made us a new creation. And Jesus, therefore, has transformed our relationships with other people. And we need to remember that and recognize that, right? That we, don't get, that we don't get to treat other people badly as Christians. Those two things don't go together, right? You know, that's like chocolate cake with mustard. I mean, that's like, you don't do that, right? They don't go together. You know, or grapes and toothpaste. I mean, this is like, you know, these are things that do not mesh well, right? If you hold the faith in Jesus, it ought to radically transform how you treat people. Because guess who Jesus, what Jesus does? Is Jesus' salvation dependent on who He's saving? Like, well, you know, if you're if you're a, if you're a white North American, you get one kind of salvation. You get first class salvation, first class relationship with God. If you're if you are on the other hand from Africa or South America, or you speak Spanish or French or Portuguese or some other language, well, you know, you get like you get to fly coach. No, that's not Jesus. Amen. Jesus saves on the same basis every kind of person because He loves every kind of person the same. And if we are His people, that ought to be how we do too. Amen? So in James 2, uh, verses 2 and 3, James expands on the principle that He's given. It, this, is, this is an example. It's not the only example that He could use, but it's the example He gives. He says, he says, imagine that a guy with gold rings and fine clothes and a poor man with, with shabby clothes come into the church. How will they be treated? And just so we can understand how vividly James describes this, let me point out that the underlying Greek text where it says wearing gold rings, it literally reads gold-fingered. He's got more than one. Okay? So in other words... If I can be a little bit paraphrastic here, Mr. Goldfinger and Mr. Shabby both come in. And you tell Mr. Goldfinger, come up to the front, to the gold circle seats here in the worship center. Oh, we don't have any seats. Oh, you know, poor guy, uh, Mr. Shabby, uh, oh, you know, 
we have seats in the back, you know, where you won't be noticed. Or, you know, actually, we don't have any more seats. Just We're out of seats. But, you know, there's standing room around. Or you can sit down here at my feet. James, what does James say about that? He says, if you're doing that, and by the way, is that what comes naturally to us as people? To honor the people we're impressed by and dishonor the people we're not? If you do what comes naturally, then you've become, look at the text, verse 4, a judge with evil thoughts. What does an unjust judge do? If you're a bad judge, you let your rulings be swayed by the person in front of you rather than what is right. What the law says. Right? The law says, in the Old Testament, it says, don't don't give justice to a poor, you know, don't sway the law for a poor man because he is poor and don't take bribes and sway justice because a man is rich. You do what is the right thing. If you're the judge, you treat everybody the same. And the point James is making is that favoring one person over another, giving honor to the rich, dishonor to the poor, is unjust and sinful. It's, he says, evil thoughts. Is that strong medicine? Yes. Is it one that we need to swallow? Yes. Because be honest with yourself. If your favorite football player or singer or politician or some obviously rich person walks through that door back there, do you want to maneuver your way to them and make sure they get treated with honor? Of course you do. Right? How about if a homeless person walks in and they smell bad and they're kind of loud and obnoxious? You looking to become friends with them on the same basis? This is a very subtle temptation that we're all prone to, but it's worldliness, brothers and sisters. It's valuing the temporary trappings of clothes and money and status over the eternal worth of that person for whom Jesus died. Now look at verse 5 with me. James reminds us of God's perspective so much of James is just pointing out that God's perspective on stuff and my perspective is not the same. And that I need to align myself with him rather than expect him to conform to me. Amen? Verse 5, James says, look, God often chooses the materially poor to be rich in faith and become heirs of God's kingdom which he promised to those who love him. That is, God saves an awful lot of poor people. As you go around the world, a lot of the people who are the, the absolute richest in faith don't have two nickels to rub together. I remember years ago, this had been 24 years ago now, 25 years ago maybe, uh, in the year 2000, however we count that, uh, I was in 
the country of Mozambique in southern Africa, and I met this pastor, Pastor Kosa, who is discipling and training pastors. And he is living in the bush. Like, when I say living in the bush, you, you drive off the paved road down a two-track in your car, and then you get out and walk another couple of miles through the jungle till you come to this thatched church. And that's the home base for Pastor Kosa. And then he walks from there in a 50-mile circuit through the bush planting churches. And he gets around to each one once a month. And whenever he gets to the next little village, they have a service. And then he goes to the next one. And then he's raising up from within his church guys to go pastor these places. And I said, well, when you get them, pastor, what are you going to do? He goes, well, I'm going to raise up three more guys and plant three more churches in another direction. This guy doesn't have any more clothes than I am currently wearing to his name. But he is a man of whom the world is not worthy. God has chosen the poor to be rich in faith. And Jesus said, remember, it is harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter heaven. Why is that? Because the rich man has everything he thinks he needs. How fast do you have to move that camel to stick him through that hole? Right? The disciples said, who can be saved? Jesus said, with man it's impossible, with God all things are possible. Right? Can that camel fit? Yeah, but only if Jesus makes him fit. And the reality is, one reason that Christians were looked down on in Roman society is that so many Christians, especially in the early days, but also around the world today, were poor people and women and slaves and people of low status. Poor people often so clearly see their need for a Savior. Rich people often depend on their riches to their own eternal destruction. Verse 6, James says, Look, it's therefore foolish to dishonor the poor and favor the rich, because on top of that, the rich were the people who were oppressing them and taking them to court. He said, Y'all are like chickens cozying up to Colonel Sanders. That's dumb. The people who are persecuting you are the, are the rich and powerful. And yet when they show up in your assembly, you think it's great. Be careful. On top of that, verse 7, James says, it's also disloyal. The rich are the people who mock and blaspheme the name of Jesus, the name by which we're identified as His people. How can we who love Jesus favor those who blaspheme the Lord? We can't. Our loyalty is to Christ above everyone else. So, here's the point. If a person of wealth and influence comes to worship, rejoice. But don't fawn over rich people. Don't look for social validation of your faith from people in positions of power. The truth of the Gospel doesn't depend on it being socially elevated or by it being embraced by the rich and influential. 
Instead, we find our joy in Christ and we rejoice equally in worshiping alongside the rich and the poor and we love them completely, just like Jesus did, just like He still does. And we also stop thinking and acting toward people and treating them like we did when we were not Christians. Amen? So, verses 8-13 through 13 give us more explicit instructions on how we as Christians must, must, must treat other people. This is not optional. The instructions of the Word of God are not good advice. This isn't like, well, you know, if you do this, it'll work better. No, this is God's command to us. And so this is what we must do as Christians. Verse 8, James gives us the general principle, which is treat other people according to what he calls here the royal law, which is the Old Testament command, you shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Why does James call it the royal law? Well, there are many theories. Uh, I think it's because it's the law given by King Jesus. And it encapsulates everything else the Bible commands us to do in our relationships with other people. Like if you look at, in fact, Jesus was asked a question one time, and someone said, what is the greatest commandment in all the Scripture? And he said, it's this, that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. And the second one is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He said, on these two commands hang all the law and the prophets. In other words, all of the Old Testament is encapsulated by those two things. And if you look at, if you look at the, uh, the Ten Commandments even, what you'll see is that the first four all have to do with your relationship with God. It's loving Him as you are called to love Him with all your heart, soul, and mind and strength. To put Him first, and uh, after which there is no second in all of your affections and priorities. To worship Him and Him alone and to devote your life to Him. The first four have to do with that. And then the last six commands all have to do with your relationship with other people. How do you treat other people? You don't lie, you don't covet, you don't steal, you don't murder, you don't commit adultery, uh, etc. Right? Honor your father and your mother. All those things have to do with relationships with other people. So you have to love God and love your neighbor. By the way, who is my neighbor? Everybody in my life. My spouse, my kids, my the people who live next door to me, the people I encounter on 29, the people uh, in office in the federal government, people in office down in Springfield, uh, the people that are in my community, in my state, in my country, in my world, they are my neighbor. And I'm called to love them as I love myself. Um, so, James is saying, if you really fulfill the command to love your neighbor as you love yourself, you're doing very well. And that's true, Amen. That's a really good thing. If you love everybody you encounter as you love yourself, we should say amen to that because loving your neighbor as you love yourself requires a heart so transformed by obedience to the greatest command of loving God that you've become very much like Jesus. This is the ultimate goal in spiritual maturity, that we would live up to these two commands, that we would love God with everything we have and we would love our neighbor as we love ourselves. So I, should, I think we all should agree that this is both the command of Scripture as well as 
something we're all striving toward. But look at verses 9 through 11 now. Here James gets applicational. He says, this is the principle, verse 8. This is how it applies, verses 9 to 11. He says, if you show partiality in how you treat, in other words, if you discriminate among people, you're really violating this command. You aren't loving your neighbor like you love yourself. And that's a terribly serious sin. In fact, James says, if you violate the law in one place, you're equally a sinner with the person who breaks them all. That doesn't mean that if you break one of God's commands, you might as well just break the rest of them while you're at it. But it does mean that every failure to love your neighbor is a big deal. And he brings up murder and adultery here as examples of the same kind of sin. Now you might not put discriminating in how you treat people alongside murder and adultery, but James does. And he says, look, everybody agrees these are very serious sins. If you don't murder, but you do commit adultery, you can't say, well, I'm not really a sinner. Right? Everybody knows these things are sin. And because these things are obvious failures to love your neighbor... He's saying, look, failure, the reason these examples are here is because failure to love your neighbor in terms of favoritism of one kind of people over another is a variety of the same kind of sinful failure to love people like we love ourselves. So this is, in other words, the reason why racism is a sin against God as well as your neighbor. This is why sexism is sinful where you treat people differently based on whether they are male or female. This is why our cultural and political hatreds toward people we disagree with are sin. Even when the issues underlying our disagreements with people are important, hating people for whom Christ died is sin. It's sin. It's evil. His first cousins with adultery and murder. Favoring the rich, the racially similar, the men or the women or the members of your preferred group or ethnicity or language or fill in the blank in the body of Christ is simply a form of sin that we are too often blind to and too willing to excuse in ourselves and in other people. The Scripture calls these things sin. And whatever it calls sin is something to repent of, not something to continue or to defend or to excuse. Amen? Verses 12 and 13 are James' conclusion on the subject. He says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty. Well, what's that? What's the law of liberty? The law of liberty is the gospel itself. The law, because the gospel is the, is the truth that sets us free from sins of all kinds, including these. Amen? When James is saying, speak and act as those who are to be judged by the law of liberty, he's reminding us that we are believers 
and the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And that that reality must transform how we treat people. We must not behave as if we believe that you can be, yourself, a true recipient of God's incredible grace and love to you in Jesus Christ, and then turn around and be unkind, ungracious, unloving to other people. That doesn't work. To say it's mustard and chocolate cake, they, they do not go together. You can't be a recipient of God's grace and refuse to dispense it. That's your job. That's literally one of the reasons why you were transformed by Jesus in the first place. Is that you might be a conduit of His grace to other people. What should happen and must happen in our Christian lives is that we start treating other people like God has treated us. Because Christ's love compels us to overflow with love for other people because of the way He has treated us. See, here's the thing. If you really get the Gospel and really understand it, one of the things that starts to happen to you is this, is that one, your sense of your own unworthiness to be saved grows. Huge. In fact, it gets bigger and bigger as more and more of your sin becomes transparent to you and you see it in the light of what Jesus has done for you. You go, how did you look down and see me and decide you wanted me in your family of all people? Right? And it is that very sense of both unworthiness and gratitude that drives you in your relationship with God to worship Him and being in awe of His love for you. And then because of that, it can't help but overflow to how you treat other people. And there will be an evaluation that will come <coughs> as to how you did in that. Um, but look at verse 13. This is, this is both a warning and an encouragement. <coughs> the warning is first. It says, Judgment is without mercy for the one who has shown no mercy. What does that mean? Well, James is a very practical theologian and a pastor. He is giving a warning to people who claim to believe in Jesus on one hand and behave like non-Christians and how they treat other people on the other. And the warning is that your behavior can refute your claims. Now, I want to be very clear. What is the Gospel? Believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins and was raised from the dead to give you new life. That is the Gospel. And it is faith in that plus nothing that grants you salvation. Right? But the Scripture indicates that there are some things that ought to provide reassurance to you. One is the Holy Spirit Himself because He's taken up residence within you. The Scripture says that the Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. Right? And we also have the assurance of God's promise. John says in 1 John 5, 11-13, he says, this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who 
has the Son, has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God in order that you might know that you have eternal life. Because God wants us to know and to rest and confidently in understanding that we that if we have belief in the Son, then we are God's child. And the Spirit is there to reassure us also because, goodness, when we screw up, we can be like, did I really believe in Jesus? Right? But also, many times in Scripture, there's a third thing that's meant to reassure us, which is, well, what's your life? What happened in your life since you met Jesus? Have you experienced transformation? Have you experienced growth? Have you grown in your ability uh, to walk with Jesus and how you love other, other people? That's also something that indicates something about the reality of your faith. And James is warning people, saying, you can't, out of the same, out of the same life, Say, well, I follow Jesus and also mistreat people for whom Jesus died. Can't do it. And, and you need to be careful here that you actually have genuine faith in Jesus because genuine faith in Jesus transforms people. And so it's a warning. It's a shot over the bow, if you will. Be sure that you really know Jesus. How do you know if your faith is real? Well, one of the ways you tell is how you treat other people. And James is saying here, if you believe in Jesus, then you become merciful toward other people and you treat them like Jesus treats you. But the converse is, other, it is also true. If you aren't merciful toward other people, you will not receive mercy on the day of judgment. Why? Is it because you lost your salvation? No, it's because you never had it to begin with. You'll be like the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18. Remember him? He was forgiven $8 billion by his master, walked out and, and choked his buddy who owed him 2000 bucks. He said, pay me what you owe me. And Jesus says, take that servant and throw him into the outer darkness. Put him in the dungeon until he will pay the last penny. That he owes. What did it show? The heart had never been transformed. He had not been born again. Now, is that a hard word? Yes. Sometimes pastors can wind up scaring the wrong people, though. And so he gives a word of encouragement at the end. And he says, hear this encouragement. Mercy triumphs over judgment. James expects that mercy and eternal life is the real destiny of his readers. He believes their professed faith in Jesus is real faith in Jesus, and as a result, it will be God's mercy that will triumph, and they won't experience God's judgment. Which is, by the way, what I think about all of you, too. 
that God's mercy is going to triumph over His judgment in our case because we are authentic believers in Jesus. But also, there's a warning that's here that's real. With real teeth. And the point is, be sure you actually possess real faith. Because as Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So be sure you have real faith. Not enough to attend church. Not enough to say you're a Christian. You have to have real faith in Jesus. You have to believe the authentic gospel and be transformed by the Holy Spirit. Um, so if you've rejected Jesus, no good deed will ever be enough to save you. You must be born again through faith in Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, um, but if you have eternal life, you can trust that He will continue His work in you to shape you, to change you. And, and by the way, part of the way that Jesus works to shape and change people is through our response of our heart to messages just like this one. Part of the reason we do this every week is so that Jesus would work on us by His Holy Spirit to shape us and change us and to make us more like the people we are supposed to be. Amen? So, let's, uh, let's wrap up for today. Um, at, before I do that, I want to call your attention to just uh, one thing of, of major significance. Okay, This week, Rick Rosetto went to ICU. And while he was there, he was diagnosed with congestive heart failure. He, uh, he has uh, an ejection percentage of about 25% from the left ventricle of his heart. It's very serious. And he will have a heart catheterization tomorrow. So we're going to pray for them. They think that his heart has been weakened by the chemotherapy he had a few years ago for uh, lymphoma. And, um, and he is in very serious condition. So we want to pray for our brother Rick. Pray also for Cindy, who is um, down in Alabama with him. They're at a little hospital in Foley, Alabama. They need to figure out if they need to go to a different hospital. Um, and they are dearly loved. Um, by so many of us and we need them and we love them so um, I want to pray for them and also pray for us and our response to this message here today so let's pray God our Heavenly Father we rejoice in the fact that we have your word which both encourages and teaches and, and also rebukes and corrects and calls to repentance and even calls to faith those who may have thought for many years that they were a believer but now realize that they never put their faith in Jesus really. They just learned the language and the vocabulary and, and attended for a while until they kind of blended in. Father, they never really knew You. And Father, we don't want that to be their condition. We want them to know You in an authentic, and a real, and a lasting way because that is where the real joy of the Christian life is. 
that isn't it found in playing pretend and learning to speak Christianese. It is found in real relationship with you through faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. Through the new life that the Spirit brings as He takes up residence within us and transforms us from the inside out in response to our faith. And Father, I pray if there's anyone here who has been playing pretend that today would be the day of salvation for them. They would know Jesus Christ for the first time and experience real and lasting life. Father, may they know for sure where they're going when they die. Just like the Scripture promises, just like Paul tells us the Spirit testifies, Father, may they know deep within them that no matter what happens, car crash, cancer, lightning strike, fire, whatever happens, that whenever my last day comes, I'm going to stand with Jesus and be welcomed home as His child. And Father, I pray for the rest of us that we would heed the rebuke that is here in the Scriptures. And that we would recognize by Your Holy Spirit prompting all the places and all the ways that we don't love other people like we love ourselves. And that we would repent of that. Turn away from that. And be transformed by Your Word and Spirit to love other people like Jesus loved us. Father, help us. Help us by Your Spirit to experience the things that we long to be. And Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.